Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 you've heard am you've heard fm now tune into dm radio the world's longest running show about data each week host eric cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management want to be on a show send an email to info at dmradio.biz now here's your host eric cavanaugh Once again, the longest-running show in the world about data, it's called DM Radio. Yes, indeed, yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh. All-star cast for you today, folks, for a very fun show all about the march of ops. What is ops? I keep hearing about ops. They had data ops, dev ops, ML ops, AI ops, all this ops stuff. And being a thinking kind of person, I sat down and thought about it. And I'm like, well, what is ops? And basically, ops is the work. That's the stuff that you got to do every day. Your ops people are the operations people who are doing things, and that's changing. So the work is changing. Why? Because of automation, primarily, because of artificial intelligence, because of integration, because of lots of different things. Low-code, no-code, for example, is all over the place these days. It always has been. Low-code, no-code is not new, but it's much more prevalent now, in part because we have this whole confluence of amazing things that are happening on the innovation scale, if you will. So we're going to be talking to several guests, Steve Wallow, a company called Vicinity. We've got Ryan Yackel and also Brian Singer lined up. And we're going to talk about ops. So what are ops? Why are they important? Why are ops changing? All this kind of fun stuff. Like I said, it's changing because of automation primarily. And so let's go ahead and dive right in. And I'll throw it over, I guess, first to Brian Singer from a company called Noble9, I believe it is. And uh, you do SLOs, so SLAs, Service Level Agreements. Everyone in the tech world, in the business world, understands what an SLA is. Basically, it says, you better do this or we're going to penalize you. And SLO is a little bit different, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So let's maybe get an opening statement from everyone. We'll throw throw it out to Brian first. Tell us about your company and what you're doing. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me on today. So Noble9 provides a platform for companies to create, set, manage, and use service level objectives or SLOs as part of their overall ops strategy. And so the obvious question is, what is an SLO? And I like to describe it as really the point of ops. When we do ops, at the end of the day, the goal is to provide a service and to have that service running in a certain fashion, a certain amount of the time. But all too often, we don't ask ourselves the question, really, what is that goal? How should the service be running? What is the customer expectation? And SLAs are a terrible way to answer that because SLAs don't really tell you anything about whether the customer is happy. They're just a penalty if you breach some mm-hmm. arbitrary <laughs> arbitrary goal. That's funny. SLOs try to answer the question of how do we need to operate this service to actually have happy customers and users? Hmm. I love that. SLOs. We're going to talk about that more. Let's go around the room. We've got Steve Wallow from Vicinity, very, very interesting company. Tell us about you, yourself, and what you're doing in in the ops space. 
Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Eric, again for having me on. So what Vicinity does is it allows you to reach data in real time that is not local to you. So if you think about ops, maybe it's business intelligence, or you put some AI or ML behind that, one of the things that kills that process is the fact that my information is usually not where I need to be in order to do something with it, mm -hmm. right? So people have a tendency to take copies and move copies around all of these different places, and it slows down that efficiency. So what Vicinity does is we've changed that paradigm. We actually found a way to make the WAN actually perform like a local area network. And what that means to the users and the operations is now I can actually reach from my business applications, whether they're in the cloud or prem or call or something like that, I can actually reach this remote information that is being presented to me from my operations structure hmm. in real time, where I don't have to say, well, I have stuff over here, it's gonna take me an hour to get it, now I can reach that instantly and I don't have to move things around. So if you think about what that means from business perspective, now I'm getting real-time insights, I'm getting information that could be distributed geographically, and I can fuse it all together, I can use these tools and anywhere, but not have to make copies of data and move around. So it's, it's, a, it's a different approach, but it really changes the way that, one, you're developing the code, and two, the way that you're actually using it, because it's a whole different strategy of where's my data, how can I get information faster? Yeah, I mean, that really is a revolutionary approach, I'm not going to lie, because you think about how much time and effort is spent trying to tackle the proximity question. I mean, we talked about that on an earlier show today. We have a new show called Software in Motion. I recommend people check it out. It's very interesting. We talked about that very issue of data locality. Where is the data? What do you have to do to process it to get it? You look at like a snowflake and what they did, which was very clever, of separating compute and storage. That was a pretty big deal. That changed things, right? So you have all these different developments going on, but uh, we'll get back certainly to what vCinity is doing because it is a very, very seriously disruptive approach and uh, last but not least, we have Ryan Yackel out there from DataBand, I believe, right? Tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you folks are working on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. And uh, good to hang out with you, Brian, and Steve as well. So I'm CMO at DataBand. We just actually just got recently acquired by IBM, which will tell you a little bit why this is such an exciting space wow. that we're in. Yeah, kind of a big deal. I don't know. You guys heard of IBM. <laughs> Congrats. That's um, great. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's really exciting. So what we do is data observability. And, and the way that you can think about it, specifically in the, in the ops perspective, is that traditionally when people think about observability, uh, they think about application performance monitoring. Mm -hmm. And those are tools like Instana and New Relic and Datadog. They're all around monitoring your production application, microservices, cloud infrastructure, all those things. And what we've seen in the past five years or so is that there's a lot of these software engineers that are taking all of their skill set and they're becoming data engineers now. So they're taking all those skills they have with Python and CICD and even DevOps. They're taking all those frameworks and now they're just applying them to data and specifically data pipelines. Mm -hmm. And so they're taking data from a source. They're pumping it through a pipeline, maybe through a process like Spark as well. It's ending up in warehouses, like you mentioned, Snowflake or Lakehouse, like Databricks, and then it ultimately reaches your end consumer. But the problem is that during that whole process is if that worked perfectly, that'd be great, but it doesn't. And right. data breaks, just like software develop, delivery pipelines break, data pipelines break, and the data within those pipelines becomes very ambiguous, and we don't, you don't actually know if the data you're, you're sending to your consumers is actually accurate. So what we do is we help you detect data incidents earlier, resolve them faster, so you can deliver trustworthy data to your end consumers and your companies today. Yeah, that, that's great stuff. I love the focus on data pipelines and on 
what's the old expression when you talk about prevention is worth an ounce of, what is it? Prevention is worth an ounce of cure or something like that. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you prevent or if you notice something early, actually, there's a better cliche, a stitch in time saves nine. Now, there's an old one. But what they're talking about is if you get a hole in your sweater and you fix it right away, you can do a stitch in time to solve that problem. If you wait, then you're going to have 10 stitches to do. And it's a very unpleasant process. And Ryan, you're getting me excited because you're focused on something which is a key driver for me and for a lot of these shows, and that is morale. And let me tell you, morale goes down when you're doing stupid things that make you upset because someone didn't fix something or we don't have the right tool or it doesn't work properly or whatever. That's just a drag. And that's like, it's going to bring your business oh, yeah. down. It's going to bring everyone down. Right, Ryan? Well, that's like, I mean, if you, if you talk to a software developer, you know, I used to come from the software test automation space and you talk to developers and like, what do they want to do? They want to build code. They want to build applications. They want to build software. They want to fix bugs in production. They don't want to spend all their time testing stuff. It's the same thing with data engineers. They, they are basically taking 80 to 90% of all your data workflows and they're responsible for that large amount of data and they don't want to spend half their time maintaining broken pipelines and broken data sets and schema changes and random null records and all these things that go on. They're constantly firefighting and we want to help them resolve that. And the only way you can resolve it really is you can do the best coding and testing as you can, but just like APM, you need something to catch something that you may not be aware of. And we do things like anomaly detection around that so that we can tell right away and say, hey, you didn't even know that this is an issue. There's your broken pipeline. There's your spike in, in data reads that you had you weren't expecting and so on. Right. Well, this is great because these are leading indicators. And maybe I'll throw this over to Brian to talk about. Observability focuses on what we could call leading indicators. This pipeline went down. This, you know, Let's say in your house, we had a deep freeze last year and I'm lying in bed and I hear this like sound. I'm like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> It was a leading indicator that the pipe had broken. It froze. And I'm like, look out the front door, and it's like water is just spraying onto the ice sheets in front of my house. Well, that was an unpleasant situation. If there had been an earlier leading indicator, I could have prevented that from happening and solved myself a lot of trouble. And Brian, in the world of tech and data and systems, man, when you're troubleshooting, I mean, some people enjoy that stuff, right? It can be fun to when you get it right. Like, yay, I solved the problem. But otherwise, if you're doing it all day, that's just misery, right? Yeah, when you talk about morale and, and the data that we've seen, one of the biggest issues for ops folks and engineers is the amount of pages that they get during the day, during the night, just pager fatigue overall. So 100%, if anything that we can do to reduce the amount of false alarms, pages that aren't, aren't leading to actual issues or aren't actually actionable is, I think, really helpful for morale, like you're talking about, and, and employee retention because it is really, really hard to hire good ops, SREs, et cetera, mm. today. The skill set that it requires, if you think about ops 10 years ago, right, it was a, you know, really a more of a classic system administrator skill set. Let's stand up the VM and patch the VM and make sure that it's running. And now when you talk about automation, it's much more of a software engineering skill set where you're building platforms that are actually software. So if you have systems that are constantly bugging engineers and paging engineers and you're not able to do anything about it, you're going to start to really suffer some pretty serious employee churn. And employee churn is really painful, especially in ops, because guess what? Those people are doing the ops. <laughs> so when they leave, you're like, oh, no, that's not good at all. I'll throw it over to, uh, to yeah. Steve to, to comment on. What do you think, Steve? 
No, I think you're spot on. That is one of the biggest problems. And one thing that kind of exasperates that, and you mentioned data overload, right? I used to do uh, some work for the government on some fighter jets, right? And it, they got to the point where the pilot could only hold so much information, make a decision. So the jet had to do it for them, right? And that's where I think things like AI and machine learning are helping that process. Hmm. And one of the biggest challenges with that is I have so much data and it's everywhere, right? But if I had a way to look at all the data at one time, then I could do a better job of filtering out stuff that isn't important and maybe finding things that because I'm looking at all the, maybe I have 10 locations, maybe I'm looking at, you know, in the past, I, I said, okay, here's the data for this location. I filtered it to what I thought was important and moved it back so I can do operation stuff on it, right? Now, if I can look at the entire data set, I might find things that are common that I never saw before because I was in a very myopic view, right? But if I can see that entire data set, that's kind of what we do as a company, then all of a sudden I can create an SLO. I can create advances in the pipeline that allow me to skip steps, but get better results in, in, the, in the long run, right? And it's all about getting information in the time you need it to actually make a decision. Wow. Yeah, that's really good stuff. I'll throw it back over to Ryan where this thread started. Knowing what to watch for is important, but I think what's very cool about the world we're in right now and I really do credit the open source community and a lot of the big data vendors, the early guys who went out there and, and kind of forged this new territory. But we can see so much more than we used to be able to see. And that observability allows you to get the lead time, allows it to become a leading indicator instead of something that just smacks you in the side of the head. Right, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, our if you go to our website right now, we say no more surprises. Deliver trustworthy data. That's literally what we say on our website, which is like yeah. we want to remove all the surprises that you don't know. And I saw that uh, I mentioned Brian was talking about platforms or a software. That's basically what's going on in the data space too. Like I, in my world and people we talk to, data engineers, data platform teams, data science teams. I mean, it used to be that everyone is a software company. That was like the cool thing everyone used to say, like everyone's a software company now. Yeah. Well, like that's like table stakes now. You have to be a software company. It's like, yeah, like if you're not, that's like, it's common. But now it's in our space, everybody's a data company now. And so everybody is looking, how do you harness this data? How do you harness all this power of the data? And if you're feeding ML and AI pipelines, for example, or a business dashboard that is you know, going to be assumed to make financial decisions about your revenue, if that data is wrong, that's a problem. Like that's a big problem because everything is being basically looked at through that lens of a trusted data model. And if that trusted data model doesn't hold up, and your analyst team or science team has to then go back to your engineering team. Again, very similar to a tester that found something in staging or found something in production. They're going to have to do that. They're going to have to tell them and say, hey, go fix this. Why is this happening? Why does this keep happening? Yeah, and that's the kicker, right? I see you nodding your head over there, Steve, is uh, why does this keep happening? That's what destroys morale when it's the same problem again and again. You cannot get upstream. You can't get someone else to fix it for you and you don't have the authority to fix it. That's when you're like checking out the help wanted ads on your personal laptop, right? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And Ryan, you brought up a good point. It's the wrong data. From from what we look at, it might be stale data, which has the same benefit or not a benefit, whatever the other term of that is, right? Because there's a perishability of data, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, detriment. There you go. But you're spot on. If you're working with the wrong information or old information, yeah, that's just going to cause a not only a morale problem, but you might make decisions that could really affect your business in an unfortunate way. Let's just say that. Yeah. And when you bring automation into the picture, too, it gets exponentially mm -hmm. more dangerous. Right. Uh, I'll throw that over to Brian to comment on. Well, I think automation is a double edged sword because 
obviously it lets us move a lot faster, gives us developer velocity and all of that, but it creates a whole new class of problems. One of which is, I think you're kind of alluding to it in terms of who's responsible upstream is, is accountability. So if you move, for example, to a sort of GitOps style of deployment where you're continuously deploying your software and you're using microservices, so it's not just one big release, but teams are all releasing independently. If something breaks, it's very hard to understand if it's something that you did or something that happened upstream. And that's kind of the double-edged sword of automation. Now that we're moving so quickly, we need different and better instrumentation to be able to understand what's happening. And I think you're seeing a move toward that with some of the techniques and observability that have come to bear in the last few years, like tracing, distributed tracing. But then that creates another challenge, which is which is data overload. There's so much data about what's actually happening in our systems. How do you parse that and figure out what's important? What, what gives you good signal versus yeah. the noise? That's right. Well, don't touch that dial, folks. We'll be right back. You are listening to DM Radio. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe 25000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is the perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need 25000 50000 or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. 800-627-6493. 800-627-6493. That's 800-627-6493. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrow or in property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions apply. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, back here on DM Radio. Talking all things ops with a handful of pretty smart guys on the show today. We've got Steve Wallow from Vicinity, Ryan Yackel from DataBand AI, and Brian Singer of Noble Nine. And uh, Brian, maybe I'll throw it over to you to start off this segment. I love, love, love this concept, service level objectives, I think is what you call it, right? Tell us again about how that sort of maps into an SLA, because SLAs, as you kind of mused, can be relatively, what's the word, arbitrary. Arbitrary, yeah. Frail or whatever the case may be. There's a reason we have them, because we want to make sure people do what they're supposed to do. I get that. But like, how do you get there? How do you make that determination, especially in this new world where we have all this observability, we have all these new kinds of systems, all this new data, all these endpoints. I mean, wow, it's gotten wildly more complex out there. The modern data stack that we talk about, that's another layer of complexity too. So walk us through how your focus can help in, I'm guessing, any one of these domains. Sure. Well, I think what's really cool about service level objectives is because there's no financial penalty associated with them, we're just worried about customer happiness. We can be really honest about Hmm. what the goals are that we're trying to hit. Either the goals can be really stringent or they can be relaxed. And it just depends on what the use case is and what the customer's expectation is. And I like to use the example of if you think about maybe if you're using your mail app, If you're opening that in a browser, you have an expectation about how fast that's going to load on a cold start. Maybe if it loads within the first couple seconds, you're happy with that, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so we, we could create a objective that says, you know, on a cold start, load this page within two seconds, 99% of the time. And now you have an SLO that you're tracking. And the really cool thing about that 99% of the time is the 1% of the time that we're actually saying it's acceptable to not load it in two seconds. And we refer to that as error budget. And error budget is basically how much unreliability we're actually willing to accept in this service. And that's very important because the more error budget we're willing to accept or the more error budget that we have and that we can actually spend on unreliability, Hmm. the more we can do things like release new features, experiment, test, and so on. And so you have that example of opening the mail app and maybe that's okay, but if you think about Maybe you have a service that receives the mail and you really don't want mail to get dropped on the floor. So for that service, you might say, well, maybe 99.99% of the time or four nines, we're going to get all of our mail or maybe it's six nines, right? And so you can start to set different goals and objectives depending on what the customer's expectation is and what's actually meaningful. And that's really the power of service level objectives. That's very cool. Did you guys come up with this? Is that your concept? I wish I could say that we did. Um, it's something that's been around for a while. They're very popular. They became very popular inside of Google probably about 10 years ago, really started to be used by the uh, site reliability engineering teams within Google. Within that organization, they're used everywhere and they've sort of caught on since then. And you would be surprised how many modern DevOps organizations now are relying on service level objectives to set their goals when it comes to reliably operating services. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'll throw it maybe over to Ryan to kind of comment on this. You know, we talked about not you don't want to have too many alerts. You don't want to have too few alerts. You always want something in between. And increasingly, I think the goal is you need to find intelligent ways to aggregate these alerts into what actually means something. And I'll, I'll just kind of throw out the historical context here. On this show, like 11 or 12 years ago, I had this super brilliant guy, Zohar Gilad from Precise, on the show. And we were talking about well, we're talking about troubleshooting, basically, which is a big part of what SREs do, right? They do troubleshooting. It's a big part of what IT people do is troubleshooting. And I took this detailed briefing from them, and uh, they were the top-notch solution back then for that kind of thing. And even still, you had to be really freaking smart and knowledgeable to use this technology because all you're doing is looking at histograms and things. You're like, all right, well, CPU usage went up and the network slowed down. What was that? It's not readily apparent just looking at this screen what the heck just happened. So you really have to kind of know the underpinnings. And I feel like it's uh, that challenge remains the same in this day and age. Even though we are simplifying things and we're getting closer and closer, the environment keeps getting more and more complex. So what do you think about that as a general dynamic in the industry? And, and how do you help folks deal with that, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, that that's literally what we deal with all of our customers today. You mentioned the modern data stack at some point. I mean, I think if you go and you look at the modern data stack in Google and Google images, you'll find like 10 hundreds of different logos and all these right. different little places and stuff like that. It's like the architecture for the modern data stack is just insane. It seems like, and <laughs> That's right. it's probably produced by uh, maybe marketers. I know it's definitely produced by marketers, but the reality of it is this, like if you think about like our customers, they've got hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of data pipelines that they're, sourcing in from either tens to hundreds of different even third-party sources. So that gets very complex very fast. And that's just at the pipeline level. When the pipeline level is like a train, the train is just taking it from one thing to another. But on that path, they've got to 
see how fast that train is going. And if it doesn't hit at a certain time, that's a problem. If the cargo on the train is completely wrong or we added a new hold to the cargo, we didn't know about this, that's a problem. Lineage comes into play when you're taking the train and going to drop it off someplace and maybe get on a different track. If it (laughs) delivers the wrong data to the wrong person who's going to consume it, that's a problem. And so you're right in the complexities that these companies are taking on and they're buying software, maybe not even using it, or they're, they're thinking about what, what are the critical pipelines they want to be able to monitor. And so what we're able to do is put in intelligent alerting around their critical pipelines. Like Brian said, you don't be woken up every single day about right. all these random pipelines. We can alert you on your most critical pipelines at the right time to the right person. And all these other things that we have, we can put different severities in those alerts to say, Hey, only notify me if it hits a certain threshold of, of an anomaly. Right. So we're able to do those types of things that remove a lot of the noise, but also make sure that you know exactly where those critical pipelines are in case they break. Like another one of, one of our customers told us that they had a critical pipeline that was reading off of a database at one point. And they had they wouldn't have any idea if that database went down, only if we had been monitoring that pipeline. Wow. So we were able to tell something they didn't even know about. Just by monitoring all these complex pipelines they have. So we're able to go basically resolve and fix it. So that's some pretty cool stuff. And again, that keeps the trains running on time. It keeps people focused on positive outcomes and what they're supposed to be doing all day instead of band-aiding things left and right. Maybe Steve uh, Wallow, I'll bring you back in to comment on that. And back to this issue of morale and productivity. Right. The reason I talk about morale so much is that when morale is high, productivity is through the roof. And you Mm -hmm. can have small staff, limited resources, but where there's a will, there's a way. But if you have big staff, lots of money and low morale, you're just burning cash all day long, right, Steve? Yeah, 100%. And when we look at the makeup of the group here, right, we're, we're talking about service level objectives, which are defining the metrics associated. We're talking about observability and with the stuff that Ryan brings, which is you know, understanding and being able to see those things. And we start talking about pipeline and all those kinds of things. Think about this from a morale perspective. I'll use an example of, let's say, you know, an event occurs somewhere and I'll I'll use this loosely in the world, right? Maybe they're looking for something and maybe it's based on security cameras or something like that, let's say in the city. One of the biggest issues that we've seen in the past is, well, I want to take those to a cloud service, but it takes me a half an hour to load the information up. And now if you look at the people that want to get that information where is this event occurring what are the other things associated with it if i have to wait a half an hour to get that information i'm completely working with the wrong data right something could be in a completely different area that i thought right that's one of the things with morale and it's unfortunate but it's definitely solvable and to go on to ryan's thing about the train which is actually a pretty interesting little analogy here right if you think about it from either a cybersecurity perspective or you mentioned snowflake right earlier the quicker i can get to that data the more i can monetize it for myself and my customers right if you think about a train what if i could say well we don't use a train anymore for people maybe i can use what's the star trek term teleportation right right maybe data teleportation where all of a sudden that completely changes the game Right. And I think that's what we're bringing into that and how that affects morale and all that kind of stuff. Those those are the intangibles kind of downstream. But the idea is to provide the right information when people need. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And this is why and I'll throw this uh, fun comment over to Brian Singer. Maybe I've got a developer friend who's worked with some really big brands that everyone would recognize here. And when you get into these web first kind of plays, Obviously, developers is that's a half the ball game, right? I mean, you need marketers and salespeople and stuff like that. But really, you're out there creating functionality via code. And I guess this great quote. I just I'll get all of your comments on this. I think it's hilarious. 
He said, busy is the enemy of creative. What do you think about that, Brian? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why so many organizations now are focused on developer experience as a sort of leading indicator for productivity. And if you talk to a CIOs, VP of infrastructure, VP of ops type people, one of the things that they're most focused on is developer experience. And that is an area that requires really thoughtful investment, actually, because if you just leave it to chance, you're going to end up with people doing a million different things and creating a terrible developer experience, which saps productivity, saps morale, and so on and so on. And what is that developer experience, right? It is how your developers do work in your stack. And the organizations that understand that are able to recruit, retain, build better software on top of better, more reliable infrastructure. And I find it so fascinating. Like if you've looked in the news lately, for example, Ford, their CEO has been really vocal about how we have to become a basically software engineering company as cars and the investment is all in developers. It's all in developer experience. And, you know, this is, you think that this is like an automotive company, right? They make historically make engines, but now they're so focused on software engineering, software developers, and that developer experience. Wow. That's really interesting. And on a show today, we talked about a just shocking graphic I saw not too long ago. There was about market caps of manufacturers of cars. And it, on one side, you see Tesla. And on the other side is every other auto manufacturer in the world combined. And that's equal. So Tesla is equal to every other manufacturer combined. And you're like, holy Christmas. And partly of that is because of the fact that the markets are forward looking. But I'll tell you what, Ryan, I'll throw it over to you. I guarantee a big part of that is because Tesla thinks big. And he didn't just make some incremental change to the car. Like they went back and just reorchestrated everything from the ground up. And of course, he has this ecosystem, right, where you got SpaceX and he's able to get lots of investment from the federal government and subsidies to do all this stuff. Ooh, what a clever guy. Vertical stack orientation, right? Like he owns the whole stack. Apparently, he's going to build an airport now in Texas near his house. I mean, I just love this guy. I love how big he thinks. But that goes to show you how big things can get if you think big and then work hard enough to get up into orbit. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I go back to a little bit of the like the stories that I just came back from the Gartner conference. And I was talking to lots of different people in the Data and AI conference about the fact that you have kind of these two groups that are going on in the data space. You have the analysts and the science team and the engineering team. And I promise you the engineering team and the platform team, like they want to achieve the goals of the business. They want to be the next Tesla. They're getting a ton of pressure to compete in this insanely competitive space that we're in today. They don't want to be giving data or to be producing data to consumers that they can't take actions on or it's dirty or it's bad. And so like, I also see this morale problem that where it impedes this innovation is that at times you, and it, I hate to say silos, but it's silos is like, it's never going away. Apparently I don't know what's going on. Like everywhere we talk, talk about breaking down silos and we create more silos, try to break down the silos. I don't know what's going on. Maybe there's some like something going on there, but, but it still happens. And so like when we talk to the analysts and science team and whatever, they're like, they're like, they're feeding, it's not even just like not meeting your SLA or SLOs, which uh, Brian was talking about. It's more of like the happiness and the confidence on this side that is like, they don't control, like they don't, it's not like they can reprimand the data engineering team, but they're a partner, right? And so there's this like disconnect right. constantly of like, 
both teams want to go and be the next Tesla, right. but there's still this disconnect between the data being correct or not. And so we want to help break down silos and make sure that when they're delivering data, it's like consistent space so they can scale oh. versus not being the scale. And the last thing I'll say too is just like the amount of data that's flowing through as well, what does that require? More yep. ML pipelines and deep learning pipelines. And you've got to be able to scale that in a way that you can monitor the data because garbage in, garbage out, you're not going to be able to have that yeah. really cool pipeline if the data's bad. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I, I love that. And you're right. Silos, silos, break them down. Organizational structures are changing. Everything is changing, folks. And uh, the key is to stay on top of all this. And that's why we have this show. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio talking about the March of Ops. What a fascinating show this has turned into. Three smart people on the panel. We've got Ryan Yackel from Databand AI, Steve Wallow from Vicinity, and Brian Singer from Noble9. And let's dive right back in. I'll throw it over maybe to Steve to start us off. That great quote created, what is it? Uh, busy is the enemy of creative. There are so many ways that you can do things. And of course, what vicinity does, I think, is very, very interesting and seriously game-changing. Because I remember, in fact, going back to the earliest days of the show, when we were talking 2008 about data warehousing and ETL and all this stuff. And I spat, I wrapped my head around all the ETL that's going on. I'm thinking, man, this is just crazy. I mean, you're just mm-hmm. moving this data around and around and around again. I'm thinking it's like musical chairs, you know, with uh, if you're in kindergarten, you play musical chairs. And I was always yeah, yeah, yeah. lost my chair. <laughs> Sorry about that. But no, but you're spot on. And if you think about it, right, we've seen advancements in so many different things, like especially from the Stockholm platforms and the tools that the guys on the, on the call here have created. I can move apps all over the place, right, from an operations perspective. The problem, though, is you still have to have this little data puppy that kind of follows it around, right? You were talking about puppies earlier. And I can move my app here, but then I got to sit around and wait for the data to get there, right? And I think we were also talking about Tesla thinking big, and I think it's also something where you have to think different, right? Mm. And you, know, you can keep thinking big, and I'm just going to make a bigger car, bigger car, you know, all these kinds of things. But I think what Elon Musk did is he thought, what really is the purpose of what we're doing and, and how can I do it differently than the norm that's out there than the status quo, right? As we walk through the way that people use information, the way that people get information, the way that they monitor observability and all these kinds of things in the pipeline, we have to find ways to, to remove the old and put, put in something different, right? One of the biggest challenges that we have as a company is people don't believe it, right? As my CEO says, we, we figure out how to make elephants fly and it's not Dumbo, but it's everybody else, right? And when you come up with these kinds of things, we, as an institution, as an enterprise, as a technology resource for the for the people, have to figure out how do we expose them to these new things? How do we bolt them into other things in a simple way so they understand it and they can use it? And you know, whether it's increasing morale or productivity or insights or observability and all these other things, that's part of the challenge, but that's part of the fun. And I, I think that's, at least from my perspective, I'm sure you guys have seen this as well, where we're creating things that, that the market definitely needs. It's getting people to understand it and use it and see the value of you know, where it applies. Yeah, right. And I'll bring Brian in here, I guess, talk about these SLOs again, and then we'll go to Ryan and talk about groups and silos and organizational structures and such. I'm a big fan of the cross-functional team, right, or of just getting a task force together and you get someone from operations, someone from marketing, someone from admin, someone from finance, you know, someone from maybe the C-suite and just sit down in a room and talk for an hour. And I think what you should be looking at are these SLOs, right? That's the kind of thing you want to look at 
and just talk through things because that's how you're going to come up with new ideas of how to change things, right? And the key is to get out of behind the eight ball of what a good friend of mine used to always call the tyranny of urgency, which I heard that I was like, ooh, I got chills thinking about it because, yeah, if you're constantly in code red, guess what? You're just putting out fires all day, and that's not good for the business. But what do you think about that, so Brian? I think you are spot on, Eric, and I'm definitely guilty of the tyranny of urgency sometimes, <laughs> and I apologize to, to my team for that. But the interesting thing is that all of these folks are coming at the problem from with different contexts, right? Your CFO or head of finance is looking at what's all this infrastructure costing me and what's the ROI on the investment, whereas maybe a salesperson or a product manager is saying, I have to ship these features to make the next customer happy or to meet a sales target or whatever it is. And the engineer or the ops person is saying, this is built on a house of cards and we've got to go refactor <laughs> the code and, and make it all work. And the funny thing is they're all right, but they lack the data to make a decision. And that's really what we, we try to get folks to do together and discuss, well, what is the actual goal here for how this service is going to operate? And once you agree on that, then everything else starts to fall into place. You say, okay, we all agree that for customers to be happy, this needs to happen. Now, when you say, oh, we need to provision more infrastructure to meet this operational goal, the VP of finance says, okay, well, I agreed with you. This is what has to happen. So if we have to provision more infrastructure, I understand what I'm paying for. And if we say to the product manager, we have to pause your releases right now to be able to get a handle on this tech debt. You have data on which to base that decision because everybody came together in the same room and decided on you know what the operational goals were. That's a great point. And Ryan, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. I think that we're going through this really remarkable metamorphosis right now in business because of automation, because of data, because of observability, because of artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, like all of these things are converging at once. And that is fundamentally changing how we do our jobs. But there's this interesting dynamic, too, where it's like one day I wake up, I think it's going to be a future of more specialization. And then the next day I wake up, no, it's going to be a future of more generalization because some of the specifics are going to be handled for you. And really, it's some kind of a, a strange balance of both. And you kind of have to know your corporate DNA. What are your assets? What are your liabilities? What are you really good at? Where are you in the market? You have to kind of assess and synthesize all of that which you're going to do with data, right? Because you're going to look at the data and see, look, this is what we're seeing. I mean, I'm guilty of thinking, oh, this is a brilliant idea. Why aren't people buying it? And they're just not buying it. And eventually you have to be like, okay, well, <laughs> we got to do something different because uh, the bills won't get paid if we don't. So it's a very fun time, but it's also a challenging time. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, for us, like when we talk to, I mean, if you think about data engineering teams in general, their skill sets are vastly different than, let's say, a data analyst. And it seems like you have so many different data role types. There's like data engineers and data analysts, data analytics engineers now, data scientists. Mm -hmm. There's probably like 10 other titles that are out there. And they all have different specialty skills that they're really good at. And even within those organizations, you have skill sets that are very focused. Like, for example, you could have a very code-driven data engineering team that's using things like Apache Airflow and Spark and using Python and PySpark. And you know, they're, they're doing all this transformational type stuff that's very, very code-based. Then you have data engineers, they're, all, they're very SQL-focused. Uh, they're kind of all over the place. So I understand, like, you've got to be able... I understand the whole bring everybody together, but there's also the benefit of, like, making sure that you have focused attention in the skills that you need 
to make sure the data is going to be used in the most accurate way. Like I wouldn't suggest like a data engineer that loves to write Python code and use Airflow to automatically go, hey, yeah, I want to learn more about being a data analyst or the analyst say, hey, go learn how to do coding with Python so you can understand data engineering. To me, it's more of like, we got to make sure that for our space, we got to make sure that the silos are focused and specialized, but we don't want to propagate problems and continue to have problems within those certain skill sets. So with data engineering, the reason why observability is so important is because without it, you don't get the insights that you need to make your pipelines better, make your tasks that are reading from downstream pipelines better, that ultimately benefit the end consumer. If you don't have that, they're just going to keep propagating and you're going to have issues continually. So that's where we're trying to solve is like make the data engineering team, which is like a rock star data <laughs> data team today, like make them the shining example of like how to really work with other teams by making sure that you're continuously monitoring what's going on in your practices today so that you don't have random Jimmy or Sally telling you, hey, this dashboard didn't update. What's going on? Hey, this is wrong data. What's going on? Right. No, that's right. Yeah. And I'll throw whatever maybe... Uh... Let's see, Steve, just to comment on, we've got about so one minute and 20 seconds before the uh, end of the segment here, but new sure. jobs, new roles, new ways of doing things, almost everything could be reinvented, right? I think uh, it's a very fun time. What do you think, real quick? Oh, yeah, uh, 100%. The, it's interesting to bring up Jimmy and Sally and all these different people, right? Let's say we took as a company and put Jimmy in his own room and Sally in her other room and worked and kind of split everybody apart. And the lack of collaboration, the lack of a structure that incorporates the entire team is really what's a challenge, right? That's what we're trying to break down with these silos. And I think one of the biggest things behind that is we're all working on different pieces of information, right? Well, if we can share everything, maybe they're geographically distributed, if we can share everything so that everybody has the same insights and feedback from everybody else as a collective, that could really change the game. And that collective really boils around to the collective of, I can all get to the data when I need it, where I need it. Right? Yeah. Well, I think about Google Docs. I mean, I <laughs> love Google Docs. And it's like, how did Microsoft get blindsided by Google on their bread and butter core business model, which was the Office Suite? And the Office Suite just went, like, there's the word, cattywampus, man. It just all over the map. <laughs> Google Docs revolutionized my life. I love it. Folks, we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to DM Radio. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio, talking all about ops and different kinds of ops and, and how work is changing is really the bottom line. Fantastic show. And uh, Brian had a great idea for the podcast bonus segment all about how to use some of this data to create SLOs to make better decisions. Tell us what you were thinking. Sure. So Ryan is able to collect a lot of information about the accuracy and freshness of our data. And one of the most useful SLOs that I've seen is uh, something called the data freshness SLO because it tells us a lot about how we're doing in terms of uh, keeping our customers happy with their data. And it basically works like a latency or availability type SLO, except you're talking about how fresh is the data. And it would look something like for this particular application, we would expect data to be fresh within basically the last five minutes, call it 99% of the time, right? And that, and that creates an error budget of 1% where the data could be a little bit stale. And then you can create different thresholds for that. You could say, okay, maybe four nines, we expect it to be fresh within 20 minutes. And then that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. And then eventually the data is going to be accurate. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. And what I like is that you're creating these views of the world, right? We all understand a dashboard. And what you've got that I'm looking at is you'll have like lots of different views of things. So you can kind of see it in totality and make some sense out of something. But yeah, this is an age old construct. But maybe let's see, Steve, I'll throw it over to you. What gets measured gets managed, right? I mean, I weigh myself Mm -hmm. every day. And so I pay attention to, to where I am. Lowest weight in a long time today, 185. I was pretty impressed by that. Trying to get it to the <laughs> cool. 170 range, but Congrats. there haven't been since college. But uh, the point is, if you pay attention to it, then you are going to notice things. And if you don't have metrics around it, then it's just somebody's opinion, right, Steve? Oh, no, 100%. I agree with you. And this topic is it's a TF, right, for at least what, what I do for a living. And there is a perishability with data. You mentioned that before, right? You want to work on the right things, but you have to understand what the right things are. And that's where, you know, the rest of the team on the call comes into play, which is, okay, what, what do I got? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it old? Is it, you know, what's going on here? One of the other things we see is the concept of, let's say I want to use the cloud, but am I able to move my data? Maybe I have cloud-based applications. Maybe there's a data sovereignty. I do a lot of work in the Fed government space, which is, you know, there's a sensitivity. Can I even move my data to these tools that you guys offer to do something with it? Right. Maybe it's too big, changes too frequently. These are all the things that kind of get in the way. So at least from our perspective, you know, we're, we're just a glue. Right. You, you guys provide the management piece behind that. Right. You mentioned operations and management. The more copies I got, the more I got to maintain, you know, higher the risk associated with somebody getting a hold of something. Right. Our job is to kind of minimize it all piece so that we're just not blasting people with the same thing 20 different times. Right. But I think it, it's a compliment to what you guys talk about on the show and also you know, kind of where the industry is going. Yeah, and I'll throw it over to Ryan for some final thoughts here. You know, data is the lifeblood of business. Like every application uses data. Every application will use data. Without data, applications are meaningless, basically. And we're getting better and better at being able to see data, put data in context, have these leading and lagging indicators on data and what it means and where it goes. And, you know, the more we focus on that, I think we're all going to be. And as I look at the metamorphosis that is going, it's in process right now. It's just changing. You see it changing in job titles because you don't have these jobs anymore because guess what? That part got automated. And that's great, right? But you do have to start somewhere. I mean, I think about, I I used this example the other day. Years ago, when I started in the newspaper business, I would lay the paper out as the editor. So I had to write so many stories and I'd have stories written. And then I would get from the production department what they call dummies. And dummies are just pages laid out with all the ads. And so I can see how many inches of content I need for each page. And like, if I don't have a lot of content, I'm up late writing articles or you know, coming up with pictures or doing something. Yeah. But the point is you always had to start somewhere. Like there's no way I can look at the totality, even like 14, 15 articles, five pictures and 18 pages to fill. Like you can't do that in your head at once. So you have to start somewhere and then build out from there, which is what I would always do. And that's what I see as the big challenge for businesses now is, look, let's start somewhere and figure out what is Susie going to do? What is Bill going to do? Because it's going to change. You're not going to be doing the stuff you were doing yesterday. And that's probably good for morale because it's fun to do new stuff. What do you think, Ryan? No, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that the insights you're getting from specifically around like the data that's in your space allows you to take on more workloads. Like, for example, we had a customer that they're scaling up their ML pipelines around 60% of their pipelines had at least one data incident, which is way too high. Wow. They needed to add more pipelines to the mix to do more. I mean, again, like people want to take on more work. They want to be able to like do more things and do more fun stuff. And we were able to, based off of monitoring the insights around the data as it's flowing, say, hey, 
here are where all your problems are in these pipelines. Now go fix them. And then now it's less than 1% of their pipelines have data instance. So that's great. It's a great use case from like fixing stuff so you can go faster and actually have a better time <laughs> doing the stuff you want to do. Right. You slow down and do that. I will say, Brian, I felt like was giving an advertisement for data observability when we first started off this segment because he was talking about data freshness and being able to see like record counts and data operations. And things. that's exactly what data observability does. It's, hey, you're expected to get this thing. And I literally just did a webinar that was called today called How to Guarantee Data SLAs with Data Observability. I didn't want to tell you that because you're an SLO guy, but I was using <laughs> the term data SLAs. That's yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, like I like your term better. Like I think that's a better term that data engineering team should use versus SLAs. Cause I I think what you did was really cool in showing that SLAs have like financial implications down on the consumer side. Like for our side, like down there. Like, hey, if this product product isn't up and running because of the data that fed it, that's a problem to the business. But there's also those SLOs that the data engineering team and the consumer team needs to agree upon so that they're like good to go when it comes to data. And like one of the things we do is exactly what you said. It was like, hey, we expect the data to get to this time at this day in between this threshold. We're okay with it. And you're able to do that by setting certain anomaly detection in place so you can find it if it, it. Uh, doesn't hit that doesn't hit that data freshness metric. I love it. Well, folks, check all these guys out online. Brilliant folks today. I'm sure we'll get them back. And I'd love to get a deep dive on both DataBand and also on Noble9 and the latest on vicinity. And folks, uh, hop online, send me an email if you want to be in the show, info at dmradio.biz. We'll talk to you next time.